Prevail. C'est cette Genève programme pro politico. L'histoire, la sécurité nationale. Crimen organisado, dinero sucio. Global corruption. Ta brotpou, sa démocratie. Et ahora, ATP. Et maintenant, comme ustedes, su anfitrion. Welcome back to the fight. This time I know our side will win. I'm Greg Oliar. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. We've got a great show. Arthur Snell is here. This is, I believe, Arthur's third tour of duty on the Prevail podcast. He joined the Foreign and Commonwealth Office in Britain um, after graduating Oxford with a first-class degree in history. He's fluent in Arabic, so he served in Afghanistan, Zimbabwe, Nigeria, Yemen, and Iraq. He was the head of the international strand of the UK government's Prevent Counterterrorism program. He's now a geopolitical consultant and the author of a book called How Britain Broke the World, which we talked about last time. He has a podcast called Doomsday Watch, which is excellent. Um, and it's now in its um, different season. It's a new season. And what he's done here is presented a history of the war in Ukraine. So it's a different kind of twist on the usual stuff he does with the podcast. It's really, really good. If you want to know what's happening in Ukraine, sort of as a historical document, I highly encourage you to download and listen to Doomsday Watch. Oh, and he also has a substack. The substack is called Not All Doom, uh, <laughs> which I guess is going to have things in it that aren't Doom related. We're, we're excited for those. Um, there, there wasn't as much Doom on the podcast. We always have a good time chatting and we talked about all kinds of stuff. We talked about um, Eurovision. We talked about Rishi Sunak. We talked about the coronation. We talked about the elections in Turkey. Um, which we recorded this a couple weeks ago, and the first round of elections is now over, and we're waiting on the runoff. It is looking like Erdogan's going to win, but um, we analyzed that a little bit. We He, Arthur, uh, analyzes that, breaks that down a little bit. And then the second half of the podcast is really about the war in Ukraine, what's going on there, what he thinks might happen, and what Europe might look like when all is said and done here. Um, pretty fascinating stuff. Really, really important. Um, you know, this war is the primary event now of this generation. It just is. It's going to reshape the world in ways, you know, that we can't necessarily anticipate. So it's important to think about, to talk about, to keep in the public consciousness. I know it gets exhausting with all the doom and gloom, you know, the doomsday watch. But uh, this is a super important story, and I'm going to keep bringing it to you. This is also the 100th episode of the Prevail podcast. Somehow, I've done 100 of these. I can't even believe it. Uh, it feels like yesterday. Actually, that's not true. I don't remember a time when I was not doing this, so I guess that's good. And to celebrate the 100th episode of Prevail, we're going to change the name of the podcast. It's now just going to be called Ale. I'm just kidding. That was a little, uh, you know, if you have HBO Max, now suddenly it's Max all of a sudden. I don't know what fucking marketing team thought that this would be a good idea. It, nobody that I talk to thinks that it is. You know, HBO is this brand that's been around forever that has super high uh, 
um, approval ratings, in my view, you know, that sort of equates itself with really quality programming. And now we're just going to name it after a dog. I don't know. It seems weird to me. But what do I know? You know what else is weird? Paying $100,000 for Kevin McCarthy's used chapstick. I wouldn't pay $100,000 for used Kevin McCarthy. I don't know. These Republicans are weird and they are dangerous and they are trying to crater the entire global economy in order to cut taxes even more for their rich donors, which is evil. It's just patently evil. Kevin McCarthy is one of the dumbest humans. I, I don't know why we keep installing these dumb people into positions of great power and think that it's a good idea. I wish we would stop doing that. Maybe we should like not do that. Maybe instead of doing that, we should not do it. I'm just going to say be better. All right, enough prattle from me. This is a great conversation. Um, Arthur is one of my favorites. We always have a good time. So please enjoy this discussion with Arthur Snell. This is a story about rich old Barry Side. Got a ton of cash to spend and even more to hide. 1.6 billion is what the fucker's worth. And he gave it all away to the worst people on earth. Gave 1.6 billion to Leonard Leo. It's with the Knights of Malta and with Obastio. He's the man responsible for overturning Roe. And Barry Side gave the money to him. Fucker. So much dark money to run. So much dark money to run. So much dark money, I'm stunned. They got money, we got none. Oh, oh, no. Arthur Snell, welcome back to Prevail. It's great to be back, Greg. Um, lovely to see you. I want to talk about your, uh, the new, uh, is it a season of the podcast? This podcast. Sounds- I think we can call it a season. Sounds yeah. a bit like Netflix, but you know, that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk about that. Cause I think it's, it's really important work that you're doing over on the, uh, doomsday watch, um, journalistically at this point, it's really a, it, 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 we'll talk about it later, but I wanted to, you know, right up front, if people are not, uh, listening to this and subscribing to it, go subscribe to doomsday watch because it's, it's really such a great source for what's going on in the world, and particularly now with this this installment, this iteration, this season, um, a sort of history of Ukraine. So I want yeah. to talk about that. We're going to get to that later. Okay. First, I, I was I was looking at your Twitter before um, before you came on, and uh, I guess Eurovision is happening now. It is. Yes. Yeah. So there are certain things that happen in Europe that people in the United States look at it. We're like, what the fuck? We don't know yeah. what that means. So what's up with your, I didn't even know that, that Britain like participated in Eurovision. Well, do you have, do they, do you guys have, do you, do you personally have a rooting interest? Like what's going on with everything? Well, so Eurovision, unlike Brexit, the Brits are all in. Um, <laughs> and in fact, this year, Britain is hosting Eurovision. Now that is normally uh-huh. an accolade that goes to the winner of the last year. But we are doing this for Ukraine. So Ukraine won last year. And uh, for all the obvious reasons, they, they're not in a position to host it. So it's being hosted out of Liverpool. And um, so that that's kind of charming. But then, 
Eurovision, it's so weird. So the first thing that's weird about Eurovision is that there are plenty of countries that are nowhere near Europe that are in Eurovision. So uh, just for one example, Australia is in Eurovision. Okay. Um, Israel, which I suppose is, is a bit near Europe, is not that near Europe. And then, and then you have sort of countries which are certainly on the edge of Europe, like Armenia's participating, Georgia, and then, and then you know, countries you think of as very European, like you know, France, Germany, Italy, whatever. They're all in it. But it's, it, yeah, it's a crazy thing. It's sort of these weird kind of camp, three-minute pop songs, and sometimes they're kind of played for laughs, and sometimes they take themselves very seriously. But it, it's, it's a very kind of unique thing. And and if uh, if your listeners, probably mostly in North America, are not familiar with it then there's hours of fun on YouTube waiting for you. <laughs> I will say, I uh, a couple of years ago, I went away with some friends and there was a, I don't know if they won this year. I believe it was a, Mold, it was, they were from, Mold, I want to say Moldova. Ah, oh, Moldova. Yeah, that they, they, they are, they're, they're famously, uh, you know, a very small and not very wealthy country, but they punch above their weight in Eurovision. They always have a great entry. Yeah, this guy, I think it was Moldova. He played the saxophone in this little like solo thing. And somebody edited it so that there's a 10-hour clip that just loop of this guy's sax solo. It's just called Epic Sax Guy Eurovision. Epic Sax Guy. And it's yeah, actually... He, so we, he's a legend. Yeah. We had it on in the background the entire time, and nobody got sick of it. it was, it's kind of amazing. You yeah. Know? You would think that would be like some sort of you know, black site torture device to have, have to listen to this saxophone guy over and over. But no, it was actually cool. So... So Moldova, maybe Moldova is going to win again this year. Maybe I don't know. Well, I mean, I I just just before we we started recording, they they had done their entry. It was pretty weird, I have to say. But okay. sometimes weird wins, you know, that's a great thing with Eurovision. There's some some pretty crazy stuff has has um has come good in the past. Okay, good. I'm excited for. It. I think I'm going to pay more attention to it this year. I need mm. I need more camp and comedy and and um, well, there you go. Um, artistic. Um, well, you, cool the, stuff. the first oh, song of the evening is um was is Austria's entry and for reasons that I cannot begin to explain is dedicated to Edgar Allan Poe so I mean <laughs> that is Eurovision all over <laughs> uh qu quote the judges nevermore um, yeah indeed indeed <laughs> right okay so since la since the last time you were here uh you guys um you crowned a king we did I, I happened to be up early that morning and I watched most of the actual you know, the ceremony. Yes. Um, I tuned in during the part where they put like the sort of cubicle around him. Oh, yes. Like from that office space. really weird, that bit. <laughs> and, uh, and I started to, 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 you know, to live tweet because I'm like, nobody else is awake and, and you know, nobody's watching yeah. this. Uh, yeah. I thought, you know, as, as spectacle, it was pretty fascinating to watch. Yeah. Like people that are not familiar with coins don't know this, but there's a point at which in one hand, he has what's called a, a globus cruciger which is that orb with a cross on it. That's and right. he's got his scepter um, kind of resting on his knee and he's yeah. striking this pose. And it's very intentional because that's the pose that's on coins going back thousands of years exactly. on the reverse. And yes. uh, I'm like, is anybody else picking up on this? Is it just me? So what were your, I, I want to, where were you? Where did, you didn't go there, right? You, you, no. you were home. No, you, no. Did you watch it? And uh, what did you think? Yeah, so I watched it at home. I mean, I, I had a fairly normal morning, you know, doing things around the house with the TV on. And I guess like a lot of Brits who are, you know, you, you get people in Britain who are obsessed with the monarchy and who probably, you know, might go to the event, even if they're not on the inside, you know, but be, be in the crowd or, or 
or might sort of get up especially early and put on their best suit or something. I'm I'm definitely not in that category, but I I'm definitely interested, and I'm I'm I, I'm a history major, so I sort of the historic side of it certainly interests me, and I think that bit of it is so fascinating because this ceremony has largely been the same since uh, we're going back to King Edgar. So this is before William the Conqueror. Everyone's heard of 1066 and William the Conqueror. And that, you know, that's a long time ago. But King Edgar, he's in, I think he's in the 8th century, if I'm not wrong. Um, so we're we're way back into the darkest de- depths of history. And it is quite bizarre. And, and as you say, the bit where they they put up a kind of little barrier around the king so that they can then uh, anoint him with magical oil and that yeah. that's to that's to give him special powers um and that's that's quite weird really isn't it <laughs> it looked weird on the screen it, it's yeah. not good tv i'll tell you that, that yeah that's for sure is it edgar edgar the peaceful is that who it is i think that's right yeah. i have a mug with the british monarchs on it for some reason that, well, you look at you look at you you you've got the mug yeah okay 959 to 975 edgar the peaceful well, well done. I'm, I've, I take my hat off to your your extreme knowledge. <laughs> there were there were you know there were moments watching it that were funny. They have you know because it was on all morning on all the news. Right. It was I was watching one of the network shows. There was no commercials and they just showed it all morning. And Amazing. They were they kept every once in a while they would go to one of the historians that they had. Okay. One of the, you know who's British on yeah. And and he said, uh, well, thank God for William the Conqueror. <laughs> I guess because he was the first person that did it at Westminster Abbey, but that yes. just as a as a sentence, you know, it's a great it's, sentence. It's it's well, wonderful. of course, um, maybe he didn't mention that when William the Conqueror got crowned, um, there was a huge riot because uh, I guess the guy had just invaded England, so maybe quite a lot of people were still not on board with that, and. Um, most of London was burnt to the ground that day. So uh, we may or may not thank God for him, but it was it was quite a quite a difficult day for England. <laughs> you would think so. Uh, yeah, it was the funny thing to say. Yeah, he also said, um, yeah, this is slightly old fashioned. He said <laughs> slightly. slightly. Yeah, it's <laughs> just just slightly. Just, just a thousand slightly. years old fashioned. Yeah. Yeah. So, OK, now I'm looking at this, Charles, and I think just to even pull it off, I mean, most people, if you were sitting in a, in a throne like that with crap, you'd, you'd giggle or something, you know, yeah. it just Camilla looked a little bit like she wanted to laugh the whole time, to be right. honest. But he did yeah. seem to pull it off in terms of, yeah. you know, he tried to present the gravitas and this and that. But I don't think he looked particularly well, you know, he looked like like the crown's heavy and he yeah kind of laboring. Yeah, he looked old i thought he looked old yeah and um i mean he is old he's a, he i think he's 74 so i mean as everyone has been saying for a long time this is the guy who went through the longest you know apprenticeship scheme in history he waited well you know he he was a little boy when his mum was crowned but but you could argue that he's waited at least 50 years for this job or 54 years maybe um he uh yeah, he now looks quite old. He he looked, I agree with you, he looked kind of almost awestruck yeah. by what was happening. Uh, and I think quite emotional at some points. And I think, you know, fundamentally, because we live in a, a very sort of modern and cynical age, um, and there's plenty to be cynical about when, when you look at the British royal family, so, you know, that we can be critical. Um, but he personally, I think, is is sort of, 
is is an all in believer, and therefore I suppose for him it, it was literally a kind of magical moment, um, yeah. or certainly a, a, a profoundly religious moment, and you could sort of see that in his face. I think. I think yeah no I agree I think he you could see he was kind of overwhelmed by it. and I think that's the yeah. right you know I don't think he did that on purpose I think he, mm. his reaction was authentic but that yeah. is the right response I think to have if yes. you're not William the Conqueror who's just killed Harold on the battlefield yeah. and you're going to go crown you know and you're that kind of macho whatever if you're if you're him that's I think that's the way to do it um yeah. but it uh, you know watching the thing I, I I'm half you know again like you I'm interested in history and I'm interested in the spectacle and yeah just to see how it starts. There's not been a coronation since 1953. No. A long time. Um, so, you know, what What do they do? How are they going to do it? Part of me was fascinated and part of me wanted to laugh the whole time. So, yeah. uh, you know, and I think that's probably a lot of people's responses. But do you think we're going to have, is the monarchy going to go away ever? Or are we just going to have this for, for the foreseeable future? What do you think? Well, I, I certainly think... Um... We're, it's going to last a fair while. Um, I actually thought, and and I wonder. I think you and I might have spoken about this on previous podcasts. Yeah. That I I thought that King Charles would quite quickly run into difficulties because he does seem to have, you know, some character flaws. And you know, I'm everyone's got character flaws, right? But I I think he had a hard act to follow in that his mother was whatever one might think of the monarchy and the institution, she was kind of personally unimpeachable. No one no one could kind of lay a glove on her. Whereas he does seem more human and, and you can see that he's sort of lost his temper in public and things like that. Um, and he has this sort of side to him, which is a bit self-pitying, which again, for a man more born to extreme, you know, literally the most extreme privilege ever is is quite hard to, to sort of swallow. Um, and so... I thought that it was quite possible that his reign would go wrong quite quickly, that there'd be some, you know, thing where he expressed an opinion or he he sort of complained that his life was so hard and everyone looked at him and said, what are you on about? But actually, so far, you know, he's he's undoubtedly, um, you know, that that coronation, he seemed to get a lot of public support. So I think certainly for the medium term that they're set fair, you know. Well, you know, we root in the United States for Britain to be... Uh powerful uh a, a force for for democracy and all this stuff so it's odd to root also for the king but you know yes uh it's strange the whole thing is odd but it is odd i guess we'll see what happens now last time you were here speaking of odd we yes we, it was during the brief liz truss interaction oh, my goodness so, <laughs> uh I think you know in order to schedule that it was it was tricky because it really wasn't that, that much makes time. it a historically significant you know people will when when sort of archives of podcasts are a thing for future historians <laughs> they'll, they'll be able to click on that one as a special particular moment so she's gone um mercifully I think um yeah. now Rishi Sunak is the new prime minister mm -hmm. I, I'm trying to get a bead on him he seems obviously he's very wealthy yeah. Um, he seems to me to be his out of touchness seems almost on par with the Kings in a lot of ways. That's right. Yeah. What, what's your sense of him and your sense and the sense in, in Britain in general, like yeah. the popular sense. Yes. So I think, I think what he's like, I think Rishi Sunak is a type that many Americans may have come across, particularly if you're on, on the coastal bits of America, you know, a type who has been to 
elite universities worked in Goldman Sachs or hedge funds or, you know, maybe uh, maybe sort of big tech. Somebody who has is undoubtedly very bright, very intelligent, you know, very qualified, but has spent their entire life, literally every bit of their life, surrounded by people at that sort of top level elite, mm -hmm. you know, and, and every aspect of their interaction with the world comes at that level. Um, and they've just got really no conception of of kind of what normal is. And I'm sure there are people like that in America that if you flew them from their sort of Fifth Avenue apartment to somewhere in, in middle America, they'd be very confused and lost. And Rishi Sunak is that guy in Britain, that if you took him out of his sort of ultra privileged environment and take him to uh, just some kind of normal kind of boring little corner of England, he looks very out of place. And in fact, we've seen this as a politician, inevitably as a politician, um, you do have to at least play the part, you know, of trying to fit in with the ordinary guys for the photo calls and all that. And there's been several of those where Rishi Sunak looks like he really doesn't understand what's going on around him. And so so I think that's, that's the kind of the, the top line um, kind of view on him. But, and there is a big but, when you've come after Liz Truss, and as we just touched <laughs> on there, you know, a, a short and very inglorious um, phase as prime minister, and then you've come after, after you know, she, she followed Boris Johnson, obviously, who, who was just chaotic. People look at him, and even the people who probably think, well, this guy's super rich and not like me, they can see that he's competent, he knows what he's doing, he's, he's, um, he's sort of capable... He, he's he's definitely not he, he's he's not a drunkard he's not you know i'm sure he's completely stable in his marriage and all those kinds of things that were just sort of chaotic in in the in the earlier period have all gone away um so i think there's there's a bit of relief that there's just a, a sort of grown up back in charge um but that doesn't mean that he'd necessarily win the next election it just means that i think in general people are just happy that we're going to have the same prime minister for at least two years or something. And that, that would feel like a good, a good run. So, okay. So that's, he is there for two more years mi minimally. Well, I, right. So, okay. so there's an election due next, well, technically, because unlike yours, you know, they're not fixed that they can be called right. at any time, but, but the, the, the limit on it would be this early in 25, 2025. Okay. Right. right, all, right, right. all the pundits are saying it's going to happen sometime next year. So he's he's back. He's actually got probably just a year and a, a year and a bit, you know, maybe 15 months until the next election. Uh, is there any sense that that Labour is going to win this time and be able to put somebody else as prime minister or no? Uh, no, I, I think I think there's a good there's a high chance they're going to win. Um, they are they're riding high in the polls. Now, of course, you'll know very well that you, uh, you know, out of the election period, Often the the, the opposition the, the, can yeah. can look great in the polls and then and it all tightens up when you get to the election. But I think I know that you have this concept in in the US of the sort of the wave election where people have just decided we're, we're done with this we're, we're going to switch. I think we're, we're set for something a bit like that in the UK that that people want to um, want to shift to 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 the other other side you know we've had 13 years of conservative government right and most people think the country's in a mess 
So you've got the Brexit thing that e even supporters of Brexit look back and think, well, that wasn't what we planned for, you know, that we didn't deliver the promise that it, it gave. Right. The wider economy, I mean, the, the, obviously the global economy is, is in a difficult place with the effects of the Ukraine war and, and other post-COVID, so, so many other issues. But most of the statistics show that if you line up the sort of the wealthiest 20 economies in the world, the UK is performing worse than most of the others. So most of our peer countries that we should be roughly e e even with, we're, we're, we're slipping behind. And that appears to be a function of of the Brexit in particular, but all, uh, other aspects of, of the kind of conservative legacy, lack of investment in infrastructure, public services, things that again would be familiar from North America if you have Republicans in charge for too long. So we, we've got a lot of those things and they come together and, and people are fed up, you know, they, they want to, they want to shift. So I think, I think it's very unlikely that Sunak would win the next election. But the, the big question is whether Labour would get enough to have a majority government, or right. they'd need some kind of deal. And this is where it gets more complicated. So we have We've, the third party in British politics, the Liberal Democrats, um, which is probably ideologically closer to the Democrats. You know, it's not a the Labour Party is technically a socialist party, albeit, you know, one yeah. that has has drifted uh, over the years. But it, it is certainly that's its self-identity. Uh, and the Liberal Democrats is, is more of a kind of centrist sort of Clinton style um, political movement. And that you know, that's waxed and waned over the years, but they're doing quite well at the moment. They, we just had local elections and they did really well. So a lot of people are now wondering whether Labour would need to rely on the Liberal Democrats to form a government, which, you know, is, is a more, in places like Germany, France, Netherlands, that's quite normal. But in the UK, that's a fairly unusual um, situation. Okay. Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Yeah. And soon, what's his foreign policy like? Like, how is he on, on specifically on the Russia-Ukraine thing? Because yeah. it seems like it's good, but I just, you know. Yeah, no, I think he is. I think right at the beginning, there was a bit of nervousness that this, this guy with a very kind of financial background, a lot of, he's clearly very into kind of global big money. Maybe he would sort of be a bit soft on Russia. He He likes the banking. He likes the the um the the financial services all that stuff and in fact there were specific i mean th this may not be fair or reasonable but so sunak's wife i mean she he himself is very wealthy but his wife is uber wealthy she's from a indian billionaire family a guy who uh, the the father-in-law made made billions in software services infosys which you know is a huge software oh, yeah, company yeah. and so and Infosys, I think, had a big or maybe still does, but certainly did have a big business in Russia. And so there were all these allegations that he was going to be soft on Russia, but that hasn't happened. And and I think, you know, I obviously I don't know what's his private internal opinion, but certainly that the the government policy has stayed stayed very firm. And in fact, just a couple of days ago, the UK announced it was sending storm shadow yeah. missiles. These are longer range missiles. And in fact, I think I'm right in saying that that's that's a capability that even the US hasn't uh, yet given to Ukrainians. So so in that sense, if you were at looking just on the face of the the evidence, you'd say that the 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 policy is still very very kind of firm. That's good. That's good news. Um, yeah. And I read yeah. that too about the, uh, the these missiles, the storm shadow missiles, 
um, because the Russians are really pissed off about it. Uh, they that, are. That That's RT a good lady. sign. <laughs> yeah. Margarita Simonyan threatens the UK. She wants to send like, you know, more uh, assassins there to uh, right. do whatever. Yeah. And there seems to be rumblings there. Uh, yeah. There's so much Russian money, though, in London that it, it seems like maybe cutting off the nose despite the face in some ways with, with yeah. how it would work. I, I don't know. Yeah, um, it's interesting, this stuff with the, the Russians. They do have this sort of obsession with Britain, which I think is very historic in the sense that at the time that the Russian Empire, you know, in the late 19th century was becoming a thing, um, obviously uh, the southern boundary of the Russian Empire was was jutting up against the British Empire in India and what is now Pakistan and Afghanistan mm -hmm. and so on. So so the, there was this kind of historic rivalry. But, you know, wh whatever we might think about the, the rights and wrongs of the history, you know, Russia is still an empire and Britain is not. You know, we're, we're, we're just this, that island on the edge of Europe. And um, but you still find this slightly obsessive tone with the Russians. And I saw the other the other day, uh, Dmitry Medvedev, who, of course, back in the day was even president of Russia, albeit mm -hmm. the kind of marionette president, you know, on Putin's string. But and he was seen as a more liberal guy who who at one point people hoped would would lead Russia out of its kind of authoritarian um, phase. But he's now since since the events of last year has gone hyper nationalist, and he he threatened that Britain would be um, would be kind of drowned under a tsunami that would be created by some new Russian weapon, um, and it was just such an absurd you know it's just a kind of crazy threat that everyone in Britain was kind of making a big joke of it. It's like surfs up you know <laughs> the, Russians, the Russians are sending us the the, the best surf ever. Um, um, if it's yeah. Russian, it would be S E R F, right? Yeah, you're right. Yes, very good. Yes, <laughs> I, I guess I, I see what you did there. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, based on their military capabilities so far, I I don't know that they have any secret weapons hiding. I well, think right. They're... If, if they're, they're keeping them very secret, is all we could say. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's really a shit show. Like, I don't even know. You know, do they have nukes? Do they work? Like, I yeah. does anybody know? I. Maybe yeah, not. I mean, yeah, you don't want to test that, but I know what you're getting at. It, it's and actually, as a serious point, somebody I know who is a, a a sort of technical expert, he one of the things he said about uh, the so-called tactical nukes, which, as you'll know, are these smaller scale ones, is that the basically when every time you sort of shrink a nuke, the tech gets harder. It, it's harder to to make it work. Uh, as a simple sort of point. And um, given what we've seen, as you've said, with, you know, the Russian weapons, it, it might be that the tactical nukes don't work at all. You know, yep. that, 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 that it's just it, 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 that they work on paper, but they just don't work in practice. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. I just think, you know, again, it's, it's a thorny issue because you want to obviously it's a serious thing if you know, yeah. nuclear war is nothing to joke about. But no. Just because he threatens it doesn't mean that everybody has to stop and pay attention to what he does. Exactly, yeah. and 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 there, and it's that it's that classic thing of um, you know, they if you've been threatening nuclear war one way or another since about 1997 when the first expansion of NATO happened, and you know maybe people don't take you very seriously anymore. Yeah, the boy who cried wolf. Yes, your war. Yes. Yeah, right. Yeah, we 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 know that that story by now. Um. So we'll get back to, to Russia, Ukraine uh, in a second. Actually, this is a good time to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Arthur Snell. 
Okay, we're back with Arthur Snell. Um, we're talking about elections. There's a big election coming up in Turkey, which yeah. um, I know very little about. I know that that um, I do not want um, Erdogan to win, but that's as, as, as much as I know. And I think the opponent was now has been threatened and is walking around with a uh, a bulletproof vest and heightened security there. Yeah. So what what's going on in Turkey? What can you what can you tell us? Yeah. So so President Erdogan um, has been sort of drifting in an ever more authoritarian direction, but also a more kind of Islamist direction over several years. And of course, Turkey, you know, has its foundation as a secular state. You know, most of the population are Muslims in their private lives, but but it, it's, it's had this secular um, sort of entity. And Erdogan has kind of ripped that up and become more authoritarian, but also basically become a very unreliable partner to, to, to Western countries. And of course, Turkey is in NATO, but they don't behave like they're in NATO. They um they bought a, a very high-tech Russian missile system a few years ago, which meant that that probably Russia would have ended up gaining some kind of NATO intel that they wouldn't otherwise have, have had access to. Uh and you during the 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 attempt to get Finland and Sweden to join NATO, Turkey may have made that very difficult. Finland is now in, yep. but Sweden is still waiting. And and that's solely because of Turkey kind of inventing really ludicrous obstacles. And in fact, he, most recently, Erdogan had said that he said there should be an immediate ceasefire in Ukraine, which people could tell oh, that. Well, that sounds good. You know, we don't want, don't want to have a war. But of course, what that means is that Russia basically wins because they've seized a third of Ukraine. And, and then the ceasefire would give them that frozen conflict, which was really kind of what they look for. So Erdogan's a real problem. And it, within Turkey, he's been increased, as I said, increasingly authoritarian, uh, making it very difficult for anyone to run against him in, in an election. But in spite of all of that, and people have been arrested, newspapers have been closed down, there's all kinds of harassment. In spite of all of that, he's actually behind in the polls to his his main opponent. And this guy, who's a former civil servant, a very kind of mild-mannered guy who is um, uh, representing a series of different parties. So he's literally sort of presenting himself as not a great sort of individual leader, but as someone who is is a coalition, who is somebody, is almost a physical embodiment of a coalition. And and as you say, he, he's got a huge amount of security defending him. Uh, he's been threatened with arrest and all kinds of kind of bogus legal charges and so on. Um yeah, Erdogan's behind in the polls. By the time most of your listeners hear this, we'll know kind of what the result uh, was and, and how he behaved. The only thing I I have felt is that this is an environment where you you don't concede defeat. And of course, very sadly, I think, you know, we're living in a world where people have stopped conceding defeat in elections and, you know, in, including, of course, um, very tragically in, in the US with Trump. Yeah. Um, and I think Trump makes that easier. You know, imagine the U.S. ambassador in Turkey trying to go and sort of uh, get Erdogan to see reason sometime next week. You yeah. know, they'll just laugh them out of the room. And and that's 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 one of the many uh, bad effects of, of Trump's behavior. Yeah. So so I think Erdogan, he, he's got opportunities to rig the vote. He's got opportunities just to not concede. And he's got opportunities to. Uh, force the electoral commission to kind of recount and do other things like that. But in spite of everything, a, a lot of Turks who well-connected and, and well-informed Turks 
do believe that he might lose. So I think it's going to be a really interesting sort of next 10 days, basically. It would be great if he did. What one of the you mentioned Trump and one of the things after Trump left that I that was discovered that was surprising to me is the foreign leader that Trump talked to the most was Erdogan, who called him all yeah. the time. They were like yeah. tight. And when he came to the United States to Washington to visit, uh, his guys roughed up protesters in front of the oh, White yes. House. And nothing happened, you know, nothing happened. Yeah, just disgraceful, really. Yeah, yeah, it was really, it was pretty awful. So that's, you know, that's who this guy is. And, you know, Turkey's obviously a super uh, um, strategically important country, yeah. which is yeah. why it's in NATO. There's that, it's called the yeah. Rock. I forget the name of the, the name now of the city. There's this, it's high above the, you know, the mountains and it used to be a big fortress in the Middle Ages. And it right. is now because it's where planes take off and stuff like this. Oh, yeah. Airport yeah. space. So oh, is that, um, I think it's Injilic. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's it. That's it. Um, yeah. So it's, you know, strategically very important. And if we get somebody there that isn't, uh, you know, a Trumpy asshole, that would be super great. I mean, for yeah. uh, Ukraine, for pushing back on Russia, for, you know, yeah. uniting NATO even more than, than it already has been united um, under, you know, since Biden took over, I think that the NATO has come together you know, pretty remarkably, oh, yeah. given that Trump tried to destroy it for four years. Yeah. He did his best. So, yeah. You know, I, I agree. And and I think it would, as you say, it would it would have a huge impact um, because, I mean, Erd and it's even, you know, Erdogan is 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 using uh, a a confrontation with the West as an electoral uh, platform. Now, what's interesting, and I think this is why it's not working very well, is that most Turkish people you know they don't feel any reason to be in conflict with the west so so that you know it's he's kind of picking the fight that most people don't want to be in and of course if turkey's on the edge of europe if you're middle class turkish and you you can visit europe you can go there and maybe you aspire to have your kids study in europe or or move to europe or whatever so so there's a, this kind of weird confrontational approach he's taking which is very trumpy and of yeah. course it's bolsonaro you know mm -hmm. there's a whole lineup isn't there globally of these authoritarian yahoo yeah yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. and 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 they all love each other they all they're all on the phone to each other and 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 they seem to enjoy each other's company but they they have all destabilized the world in different ways in different environments different regions but they've all had that impact and certainly if we could have one less particularly in such a powerful country like that it, it would it would be a, a very positive um development yeah. Well, thanks for highlighting that because I that was not on my radar and uh, and now it is and uh, it should be. So I want to talk about uh, it's time to talk about Doomsday Watch. OK, um, again, you know, I, I said it very muddledly up, up front, but I think what you're doing is really important because this this uh, season, I hate to use that word. I wish there was a better word, but um, of the pod is really uh, a history of of the war. And yeah. I, I think it's so important to do that. And um as a as an artifact historically because you know you majored in history you know people go back and they read things that people wrote about you know the, the roman empire and, and yeah. tacitus and all this stuff but we're not limited to just word to just words now we can have all of this other stuff and i think it's it's just great to to package it in that way uh yeah. to make people you know now but also in the future be able to go and and listen to the podcast and understand what happened? So, how did this idea uh, come to you? This this particular uh, twist on the podcast. What was the? Yeah, 
Well, well, first, thank you, and I'm I'm really delighted that that you know you're you're kind of um you're enjoying it. Um, the yeah, the the idea kind of came. I the producer I work with, Robin, and I we were talking about kind of great, really sort of classic TV documentary series of from our childhood. We both sort of grew up in the 1980s in the UK, and there was a show called The World at War, which was a history of World War II. Mm -hmm. This is, of course, in an era when there were three channels or four channels yeah. on TV. And, you know, so there wasn't that you didn't have much choice. If this was on, you were going to watch it. Uh, and it had a huge impact. It really defined the way that people thought about World War Two. And of course, in the 80s, you, a lot of veterans were obviously still in, in good health and all the rest of it. And it was it had quite a kind of somber style and quite a kind of quite serious I mean, not over serious, but but a serious tone equal to the the seriousness of of the of the content. Uh, and in fact, the the narrative was the voiceover was Laurence Olivier, you know, the great actor. So it was it it it's I think you can find it on YouTube. The World at War. It's kind of worth looking at. Um, and we felt it would be without being over ambitious or sort of over, overly hubristic. We we kind of felt that that was the the vibe that we would try to go for as something that would that would hopefully stand the test of time that people might come back to in a few years and sort of and pick it up and 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 create this kind of narrative history now of course the big difference world war was being done about 40 years after the events right. we're doing it one year so it's it's very much a first draft of history there'll be things that that maybe 20 years from now people will, will take a different opinion on but 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 trying to treat it in this kind of uh, grand historical view rather than more kind of reportage of just, you know, things that have just happened and that kind of stuff. Um, no, I think it's a great idea and I'm, I'm, I'm really glad you're doing it. And I think it's, you know, having the first draft is important. I mean, mm -hmm. a couple, a couple of weeks ago, I was reading, I bought a book at the book fair called fascism and it was right. about the rise of Mussolini written in like 1950 by an Italian wow. historian. So it was, wow. you know, so I read and it's slim volume. So I read mm -hmm. through it and, um, amazing. They get all of it. And you, you, there's more there than probably people realize now about yeah. the internal Italian politics and stuff like that. Right. Lots of stuff that I'm like, oh, that's Trump. That's Trump. That's Trump. You know, right. but that draft of things I think is, is, you know, it's just really important. Um, so talk a little bit about who's, who's in this, who do you interview? Um, yeah. you know, all of that. What's, what's the process? Yeah. So we, we've, um, so part of it is is sort of set around the structure of the first episode tries to go right back, you know, way back into uh, the sort of deep history. And of course, as as everyone will be well aware, you know, Putin's done this too. You know, I mean, he wrote this weird essay where he kind of talks about the Vikings coming to to what is now Ukraine and so on. But in a way, I you you have to kind of engage with that stuff obviously that putin's telling of it is extremely uh one-sided well it, it, yeah. one-sided is putting it generously i mean it's probably no-sided but anyway it's um but but i feel that you have to sort of engage with that so the first episode we go right back into that and we've we've got some great um some, some great voices there are some ukrainian historians so in fact there's a guy called vladimir nenko who is actually he's now a professor in Oxford University, but he he's born uh, quite near Mariupol, um, and so so you you get that combination where someone has a deep professional you know uh, context, but also a, a highly personal uh, relationship with the subject, and then 
as as we that was that the first episode and as we go on we 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 take we, some of it is sort of fairly chronological narrative and some of it is more is kind of on a subject basis so we had an episode it was episode three which was really focused on on the russian war crimes you know which is yeah. unfortunately is really the russian way that war happens um and and you know you can look back in the history world war Two, chechnya uh, Syria, you know, th this keeps happening. It, it's not a one-off thing. And for that episode, we were able to speak to various people. I, I, John Sweeney, who's a great uh, British yeah. uh, war correspondent, who's he's basically been in Kiev since the beginning. Uh, he got there in in I think it was it was the middle of February, so just before the invasion, and he's been there ever since. But he he was reporting in Chechnya in ninety nine uh, in two thousand. So he's somebody who's been kind of on this beat for a long time. Uh, but we also spoke to uh, Ukrainian Yevgeny Maloletka, who he was the last photographer in Mariupol when the city was surrounded by Russians and effectively being, you know, um, being destroyed utterly and, and, you know, with no regard for civilian casualties. So that I mean, that was a very powerful and, and quite difficult uh, interview to do because he, uh, Yevgeny, is clearly uh, very as you would expect, you know, very deeply affected by by his experiences from last year. Um, so we we it's it's been that mixture of people who are kind of eyewitnesses to events. We we've got um, I mean another one is a is a, a young man who 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 was a frontline soldier, you know, a, a volunteer. He's actually from Georgia, and there's a so-called Georgian Legion because quite a lot of Georgians, because of Russia having invaded their country, have gone to fight in Ukraine. And and you've got people like that who's who's whose engagement with this is visceral and firsthand, and then people who are the analysts, the ac academics, the experts. And so it's that getting that kind of mixture has been um, has been important. And then the final thing is, is creating, I mean, this is very much the producer, not me, but creating a kind of uh, an audio environment. So it's quite yeah. sort of heavily produced. We've got a lot of, we're using quite a lot of, kind of classical music, quite kind of, um, um, hefty kind of musical in, uh, landscape, I guess, and 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 I think that gives it that feeling of something which is it's not ephemeral. You know, it's something you feel that might might be listened to a few years from now. Heavy on the Mahler, it's good. Mm. Um, Sweeney, uh, I, I believe my my friend Zarina Zabriskie, yeah. who's been on on my pod a, a couple of times, she's there yeah. reporting Kiev. I think she yeah she knows him and. Uh, right. I remember the the photographer from Mariupol that when yeah. when those photos came out on right. Twitter that that was a big deal. Yeah, he took that famous awful famous picture in in the um the maternity hospital after it had been bombed, yeah. and and then of course you know later on the Russians said that it was all faked and and they pretended that this was some kind of actor who you know put on a fat suit to look like they were pregnant or whatever. I mean you know they're just. The, the 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 depth of the cynicism of, of of bombing a maternity maternity hospital and then trying to to kind of fake the incident i mean it's just yeah yeah it's it's horrible horrible yeah. um so again it's doomsday watch um please uh subscribe to it listen to it even if you don't do it right now go back come back to it because i think this is going to be obviously this is a hugely important story um not just for Russia, Ukraine, but for the United States, for for Great Britain, for everywhere. I mean, this is, in in my view, uh, it, it is the forces of democracy against the forces of fascism in a very clear way. And uh, wars are often 
very complicated in terms of who's fighting who and why and this not, this one is not complicated in my view it's it's just you know a hitlerian dictator trying to invade and take over a, a sovereign nation that he has no right to do so um and and doing it in the, in a genocidal uh horrific way um yeah. so what what's your sense now uh of what's what's happening in ukraine i mean because yeah. it feels like i mean putin could stop the war tomorrow obviously but he's not going to i think he's going to maybe continue to double down until he runs out of people and he's got a lot of people and the ukrainians obviously are not going to surrender or ceasefire or any of that so yeah. um what, what do you think is going to happen do you have any sense at all i mean what what's yeah. the yeah well so i i actually i went to ukraine um just about a month ago so just while while we were sort of starting the the production on on this new series and um i i was lucky because i was kind of i i managed to kind of tag on to a delegation that was that was meeting some quite sort of high level people i came away with some possibly quite conflicting perception so one is that there is a lot of focus on on the ukrainian counteroffensive which you know we keep saying it's about to begin and hasn't quite begun but yeah it's going to happen at some point uh this year but in ukraine i think there's a bit of nervousness that that they see that westerners are hoping that this is kind of the end of the war and of course in the movie it would be right that there'd be this big counteroffensive mm-hmm. and and they'd drive the russians off and and it would all be heroic um but of course in real real life is more complicated than that and yeah. and what they are saying is that that yes they they have they've done lots of training and they've got brigades ready to go and of course they've got they've got new tanks from europe and america and elsewhere and new weapons and so on but that may not be everything you know that 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 and russia has this willingness because it's willing because it puts no value on human life basically right. it has this willingness to just go on and on um and so what they what they say is that the russian they can't the russians can't really advance but they can defend uh and and in a way that's quite tough for the ukrainians because the ukrainians need to make big advances just to, to reclaim the territory um but coming back really to your point greg which which i couldn't agree more that that this is a this is an uncomplicated war you know this is yeah. um it's very simple uh, in a kind of moral way but i guess that, that there's another point which is related that i would make which is that also you know basically since the end of world war ii free countries particularly in north america and europe have planned for the possibility of a war with russia now it's not a war that we wanted but we, we, we knew it was a possibility and we planned for it and the weird thing is that that war has now happened but it's it turned out that they did it against ukraine but it's it is definitely that war because it if russia wins this war europe can't be at peace you know i mean it's it's uh and to to get to ukraine you you have to fly to poland and then you take a train because it, there's no flights into into ukraine and you really get that when as soon as you get to poland you realize that you're you're in a kind of frontline state and and i don't mean that in you know poland these days is a very kind of modern sophisticated country it it's it it feels very um like a country on the move basically but the there's a lot of sort of military there's a lot of security there's a lot of ukraine flags everywhere and it's just this very heightened sense that Europe's war is happening just over the border. Um, so I think, uh, 
Europe particularly, and and actually this is where even as someone as a I'm as a Brit, I'm a very pro-European Brit, but um, you know, Europe needs to get better at at, at supplying Ukraine with weapons, yeah. at producing, because one of the things is, you know, across the Western world, we've all got complacent. You know, our factories don't make munitions at the quantity needed. Um, you know, just so so one of the things I heard the Ukrainians saying was it's even if you guys decide to support us, we don't know if you've got the capacity to do it, you know. And yeah. so the Ukrainians are trying to develop their own military tech and and certain areas, um, I think they're that they're gonna they're gonna overtake all of us. So in like drone technology, because they they've really they've they've used drones so much. And and it's an interesting thought that you know if if we if Ukraine wins this war, you'll have a large country on the on the on the eastern side of Europe with a huge military, very advanced military technology, uh, and in some respects it'll be like a it'll be like a supersized Israel. It'll be this country that has has fought for its own survival, and kind of doesn't take any shit from anyone. And of course that's complicated. I mean, in both good and bad ways, you know, is Israel is is a complicated country to grapple with. So I think there are lots of aspects to this that we have to start trying to think about and and just, you know, beyond the the immediate framework of the next 12 months, which I think partly because of the the political cycle in America, I know that people are very focused on that and of course, you know, again, Ukraine Ukrainians are very nervous about a Republican president because that that for them is is um is a game changer in 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 a negative direction. Yeah, that's an interesting I thought about that. You know, them having a super powerful military. Uh, no nukes though. Not no the, nukes. Yeah. No. Um, not yet. I presumably yet. if they can figure this stuff out. And you mentioned the drones. They have very sophisticated drones, Arthur. I mean, yeah. I, Vladimir Putin said that there was a drone that came to the Kremlin and tried to kill him. Oh well, that's right. Yes, indeed. Yeah. So I'm sure he wasn't lying. You know, no, indeed. <laughs> I mean, that's a that's a weird one, isn't it? Because sometimes with with these kind of Russian, you know, fake news and propaganda stories, you're trying to you're trying you're trying to get inside the heads of this deeply paranoid state that is sort of collapsing in on itself uh, and losing a war. And and yeah, I'm you know, like most people, I find it very unlikely that the Ukrainians would would have done that. But then, then you start to think, well, if the Russians did it to prove a point, like what the hell is the point they're trying to prove? Because it's, it's a really, you know, to prove that your your Kremlin is so badly defended that a crappy little drone can, you know, attack it. It's a like really a paper air. Somebody threw a paper airplane is what happened, and they mistook yeah, yeah. it for a yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's right. I, I don't now. Um, on the topic of uh, of Ukraine, um, yeah. I've had on my show Victor Rudd, who's a Ukraine expert here in the U.S., and mm. he's been yelling, uh, not yelling, arguing for years that um, the way that that in China they will look at the way that the West responds to uh, Crimea, in particular, yeah. and now you know Russia taking Ukraine, and get ideas about Taiwan. Yeah, and I had a um, a former uh, diplomat from Australia on the show on the podcast last week, and I asked him about this because he was in China for for uh, you know, five years or whatever. That's where oh, wow. he was stationed, and he said, um, and I thought this was interesting. Yeah, after Crimea, yes, that they looked at it probably and thought, okay, we can make this happen. 
Yeah. But now that Russia has invaded and it's a complete shit show and the West is completely unified and pushing back and all this terrible yeah. stuff has happened, probably Beijing is like, yeah, we don't want that. You know, we're yeah. not going to make that mistake. So maybe yeah. in some roundabout way, it's, uh, it, it, you know, it's an object lesson rather than a green light, I guess. Uh, I, what, I think what, that's what, definitely true. And I mean, it, it's a reminder that um, a determined defense uh, is pretty hard to to dislodge. And particularly if you're kind of a peer, you know, sort of roughly peer nation in terms of your, your equipment, maybe not in scale, but in, in terms of the level of your equipment. And and of course, I'm, I'm sure your Australian uh, friend talked about this. You know, the the challenge of invading Taiwan. You know, it it's it would be like the D-Day landings, you know, all, all over again. And and that was you know that was not an easy job. No. Um, so it's it's definitely a really it's a major undertaking, but for for China. And I think I think that sort of explains. I think the realization in Beijing that Taiwan is is not a straightforward objective and that actually a lot of countries might help and make it really difficult for them. I think that may reflect the kind of worsening of China-USA relations because the, the Chinese feeling this kind of frustration, which of course I, I'm reasonably happy that they feel frustrated, but this annoyance and frustration that that this thing that they sort of felt was was going to work out for them might might not might not be so straightforward and of course the other thing then you see that comes out of that which is happening now is the chinese becoming more active on the so-called peace negotiation now these yeah. are they're, they're not again it, it's the same peace program that erdogan's got which is telling the ukrainians to stop fighting to defend their own territory which is that's one version of peace but uh it d doesn't really um doesn't really work uh for, for most people um yeah so so xi jinping appears to have have sort of tried to push that on zelensky and and i think i think actually the the ukrainians were a bit surprised by that i think they they didn't i mean they knew that china was being very supportive to russia but they didn't realize how little china understood about ukraine's determination to defend itself and in a way um sometimes we overrate i think china's level of understanding you know yes yes on on certain things they probably know everything there is to know but i think sometimes they've failed because they see things from their own as we all do they see things from their own perspective and they failed to see what it's like to be a smaller country being invaded by a larger country and and what that would mean basically yeah yeah interesting okay so this is i i feel like that's a hopeful thing um uh, you mentioned the the bit about uh, peace and oh we should have peace. This yeah. is something that like Rand Paul and and Tulsi oh, Gabbard yeah. and people like that. We we yeah. have these politicians who like to go out and say, well I I I'm just anti-war. I you know right. no 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 one's for war. No one wants to be at war. But it's like yeah. when you're when you're when you're demanding peace and coming to the negotiation table, what you're demanding is Ukrainian surrender of territory. Exactly. Right? Exactly. What, so, so sit down, Roger Waters. That's why nobody's going to your concert. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But what the hell happened with Roger? It's 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 so annoying when someone who um, you know, that you've enjoyed as an artist, I know. turns out to be a real moron. Um, <laughs> but there you go. But no, I mean that 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 crowd is here in the UK. It tends to be in the UK more on the hard left. So, like Jeremy Corbyn, yep. yeah, people yeah, associated yeah. with his crowd, and and again, I mean, it's so bizarre because the one thing that those people 
have certainly devoted their lives to, and, and one can debate whether it's good or bad, but they've devoted their lives to this kind of anti-imperial struggle. Mm -hmm. And if you can't look at what Russia's doing and see it as an imperial war of expansion, you are blind. I mean, it's just, yeah. it's so blatantly obvious. But, you know, Jeremy Corbyn, no, he doesn't get it. He thinks he thinks that, that there should be um, an immediate ceasefire and then let's negotiate. And okay, great. Well, then you then that's a surrender by Ukraine, and you negotiate. Uh, as as I was told when I was there, it's a third of our territory, and one million people living under Russian occupation. And that's one million because there were many more than that, but a lot are dead or have escaped uh, to avoid living under under Russian subjugation. So, you know, I mean, I don't know how anyone can look at the images of a city like Mariupol completely flattened. And then and then say, well, there should be a negotiation to, to do what? You know, I mean, it's to me, it's it's hard to believe that these people don't have some other motives in, in play. Yeah. Or they're just apparently in the, maybe in the case of Roger Waters, you know, maybe he really did need education. And yeah, no, control, right, yes, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe the, he should have listened to irony. <laughs> Um. So where can we find you online? Tell, tell everybody where, where we can find you. Okay, so so the Doomsday Watch podcast should be easily found on any of the normal podcast platforms, Apple, Spotify, all those great places. I'm on Twitter at Snell Arthur. And I also have started a Substack where I write about, um, I suppose, big global affairs. Um, and again, that's arthursnell.substack.com. Oh, I didn't know you had a Substack. So, okay. I'm yeah, so I'm please... Please, please take a look at that. And at the moment, at least, it, it's still um, it's uh, it's 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 free to all comers because um, I've only just got going. So now's the time. Get in early. <laughs> this is great. Um, Arthur Stell, thanks so much for taking time. Always great to talk to you. Yeah, likewise, Greg. It was a pleasure. The Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fawcett. Zarina Zabriskie, Marie Kost, and Martha Acuna provided the introduction in Ukrainian, French, and Spanish, respectively. Voice talent is by Stephanie St. John, Tally Briggs, Michelle Cantor, and me. Thanks to Allison Gill, Molly Hockey, Kenai Williams, and everyone else at MSW Media. Please subscribe to the Prevail Substack with updates every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. Your $5 monthly subscription funds the column and the podcast. Visit gregoliar.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Drive safely. Don't forget to tip your server. And until next time, we shall prevail.